The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe Part 2 Thursday, August 23rd, 2007 International Friendly Belarus 2, Israel 1 England also play at Germany at the New Wembley As an Arsenal fan, watching the national team lost any meaning it may once have had some time ago Aside from the issue of quality, the fortunes of France, from whose shores most of our players seem to have arrived at the club, seem more directly linked to our own. Tonight, the only appearance of any concern is our German goalkeeper, Jens Lehmann, who instantly catches the eye with his salacious warm-up routine. It seems to have been adapted from one of those scenes in O'Calcutta that didn't make it past the censor, by way of a particularly provocative Christine Aguilera video. Buttocks clenched and pert, Jens performs what can only be described as a series of zigga-zigga-ah-style pelvic gyrations into the submissive Wembley turf, presumably as some bizarre act of psychosexual retribution for the firebombing of Dresden. It's not a particularly edifying sight, although it is at least preferable to being forced to watch either of the pair of blunders he committed in each of our opening Premier League games. Lord Reith's legacy may be hard to discern elsewhere on the Beeb these days, but at least the football coverage still strives to educate as well as entertain. We are treated to a bit of Elgar for a start, and surely commentator John Motson, once an enthusiastic emblem of the game's youthful vigour, now stands as a sobering lesson to us all in the cruelties the passage of time can inflict. Hesitant, stumbling over words, and prone to irrational outbursts aimed at no one in particular, he might have wandered into the commentary box from some harrowing documentary on the debilitating effects of a degenerative disease. Mark Lawrenson, peremptory and irascible as ever, his long-suffering carer, too ground down by the misery of it all to correct his aberrations, or stop him wandering off onto the gantry, muttering nonsense about Paul Pesky-Solido. He's a sorry shadow of the bright-voiced cub who features in the opening Nimrod-themed montage of prior Wembley encounters between the two nations. His trademark, Rumenegger, oh, it's there, is not out of place beside Coleman's monolithic, Hernes, 1-0, and Barry Davis' austere, do nothing, in the pantheon of great goal pronouncements. Germany's 1966 World Cup veteran Uwe Saylor Selwyn Froggitt, is presented to the players before the traditional booing of the national anthems. We're told by Motti that tonight's crowd won't quite reach the 90,000 capacity due to segregation, the poor soul obviously having been transported back to the unforgiving streets of the Montgomery of the early 1960s. It's a wicked illness. England coach Steve McLaren, we are informed, wants to make Wembley a difficult place for teams to come and play football. The local traffic police have evidently been roped in to help achieve this laudable objective. The Germans find it so difficult even to find their way to the wretched stadium that they arrive late and the kick-off is delayed. While their national anthem is being booed, the 6,000 or so German fans who have made the trip to see this historic fixture hold up what appear to be black, red and yellow bin liners, turning their corner of the ground into a vast Teutonic tricolour. In response, the England supporters in the upper tier of one of the side stands hold up red and white cards in a similar fashion, spelling out the legend, Fuck Euro 2008. At least that's all I can make out as the camera hurtles by, presumably trying to get away from a miscreant mumbling motty. It certainly seems an apt encapsulation of the team's attitude towards next summer's tournament.
England have made rather a dog's dinner of the qualification process so far, losing to Croatia and drawing with Andorra. That's the football equivalent of Eric Bristow being unable to beat a blind drunkard at darts. It's a big issue, concurs the head coach in the pre-match interview, and that's certainly what he'll be selling copies of outside his local supermarket if the papers have anything to do with it. The game kicks off. Strange to see the Germans wearing red, pipes a clearly medicated Motti, sadly so ham- hampered by his hideous degenerative disorder as to be unable to add, they normally wear grey. England start brightly, aided by a German side who seem to be pursuing a bold tactical inversion of the received wisdom that it is better for your side to retain possession by passing the ball to players on the same team than to hand the ball to your opponents at every available opportunity. Thus gifted the ball, Micah Richards, who looks born to the position on his debut at right-back, shimmies outside the German box before dinking a shrewd ball ahead of Frank Lampard. Despite, we are told by Motti, having followed through, Lampard retains enough grace under pressure to allow the ball to run onto his shooting foot and blast it high into the layman's goal before, presumably, nipping off to change his shorts. 1-0 England, nine minutes played. The Germans offer little of note in the next 15 minutes or so, and then, in time-honoured fashion, proceed to score. A rousing chorus of footballs coming home from the German fans greets Kuranyi's tap-in after Schneider's cross-come shot has surprised Robinson, and elicited from him a slapstick response of which Lehmann, watching from the opposite goal, must have been deeply envious. The game briefly sparks into life on the 40-minute mark. Lamb feeds Panda, whose scorching drive from 25 yards puts the Germans 2-1 up, sparking a frenzy of eats, shoots and leaves-based punnery in the press box. Moments later, Michael Owen, an older David Healy, is put through only to see a sharp save from Lehman push his header wide of the post. England play some nice stuff in the second half, as Beckham's influence begins to fade. Sean Wright Phillips must surely be preferred to the waning Becks for the crucial games ahead. He combines well with England's best player on the night, Joe Cole, and shows that there's more than a glimmer of hope for this team if they're allowed to play football that is based more on their collective speed and canniness of passing than on Beckham's get-it-in-the-mix-and-get-it-in-early punting. Even Peter Crouch... Finchy from the office, seems to add something to the team when they play like that, rather than as a site for Beckham's long-range hoofing displays. So, amid a flurry of, of substitutions, it ends 2-1 to England. We'll just have to hope those steely Belarusians have softened up the Israelis a bit before they come to play here next month. Friday, August 24th, 2007. For Jones. I can see the bikey road, Reese. can see it in my mind's eye. One of those silly little BMX things. You know, the sort that are okay for kids, but that you should be starting to grow out of when you get to the age he was. Only this lad hadn't. Not yet. I can't tell you what he looked like, though. He was wearing a hoodie, so you couldn't really see his face. It was nothing personal, as far as we can tell. You just got in the way, is all. You see, the men who deal drugs round your way use young lads like him to run their errands for them, drop off packages, pick up the money they're owed, all that sort of stuff. Kids like him are less likely to get picked up by the police, you see. They just look like everyday soft heads, acting tough, riding around like big shots and bikes that are way too small for them, don't they? So you see, Reese, that's all he was. A BMX bandit 
who had a gun and got carried away. But you've gone into the blue now. At least I always imagine it to be blue where you are now. Silent, peaceful, blue as an Everton shirt. There'll be a silence at Goodison for you on Saturday before the Blackburn game kicks off. They'll have that photo of you in your replica shirt up with a kind message for your mum and dad and all your friends and family up there on the jumbotrons. But the crowd probably won't see it. No, they'll all be looking down, heads bowed in sadness and feeling a little ashamed if they're honest with themselves. Ashamed that they've let things get the way they are so that this could have happened to you. There'll be a silence in the Emirates too, I'm sure. And I'll be there and thinking of you, feeling just like the folks up in Liverpool. We all will. At all the grounds, on all the parks, in all the pubs, or at home on our settees as we watch the highlights later in the day. We'll all be ashamed and crying and thinking of you. I used to wait there just like you, waiting for someone to turn up with a ball. Did you used to do that thing in your head where they play the Zed Cars theme as you run onto the pitch or match of the day? Then through the game, that commentator's voice accompanying every play, relaying the action as if it was a proper game. You never really grow out of that. At least you wouldn't have if you'd been given the chance to. We all have a lot of the 11-year-old in us, which is why this hurts us so. It's no consolation, I know, but you're the braver lad by far. Not that thoughts of honour or anything like that would have been in that young mind of yours. Oh sure, he'll be full of himself at first, basking in all the attention he'll get from the bigger lads, the ones who'll try to hide their own fear from him and hope he doesn't panic or do anything silly, still cowards, still cow covering their own backs. There'll be a step in his strut for a while, and they'll give him some more of whatever it is they give him that calms him down, keeps him sweet, and he, unlike you, will have a future. And it won't be much of one, will it? It can't be, can it? always looking over your shoulder, always living in fear. Your future may have been snatched away, Reese, but it was a better one than that. You lived your young life looking forward to the next game, the next kickabout. Who knows, perhaps a trial, an apprenticeship even, one day a squad number. It may never have happened, but at least you dreamed of those things while you could, whereas the boy who robbed you of all those things... Oh, he'll grow older, sure he will. He'll have that, and you won't. But the hood that hid his face from us won't hide him from himself. And he'll always be there, looking back in the mirror as the boy turns into a man, that overgrown kid on a BMX bike who shot an 11-year-old in the back of the neck. So, rest in peace, Reese. Sleep silent in the blue. We all end up there anyhow. You were just taken too soon. Sunday, August 26, 2007. Keeping the faith. Arsenal 1, Manchester City 0. Jed, Ray Winston, isn't a believer. Not in the religious sense, at least. Although he's not altogether without faith. How can you believe in the man upstairs, he asks, when you see those poor little kids who've never done anything worthy of punishment, stricken by illness, taken too soon. Jed has one of those permanent frowns. It could be because his father and his grandfather both died at the age of 49. Dicky tickers. Jed is 45 himself, so the next four seasons are going to be pretty critical ones for him, you'd imagine. Or maybe he's frowning ahead of the sin he's about to commit. 
the only truly cardinal one to be found among the articles of our particular faith. He'll have to leave the game ten minutes before the end in order to get back home, head straight off to Gatwick and pick up his daughter from the airport. The last time he and Scott, John Tutura in Miller's Crossing, did that, we were, as they tell it, 2 nil down to Birmingham City in December 1975. They headed off early to beat the rush to New Street Station and missed the two late Malcolm McDonald goals that hauled us level. Miracles do happen, you see. They've never left early again since. Or perhaps Jed is frowning at the thought of today's opponents, Manchester City, sat there proudly at the top of the league. City fans are a funny bunch, aren't they? If there was any logic in football fandom, we'd probably be their second team. So often are we pissed on the parade of their deadly Manchester rivals. But it doesn't work like that. We have our faith, they have theirs. You've got the worst support we've ever seen. They sing from their sky-blue lido beneath me to the tune of he's got the whole world in his hands. That apart, the song selection is pretty spot on. A na-na-na-na-na-na-ring, Hey Jude, as well as their soulful theme tune, Blue Moon. It's a wonder that with all their newfound optimism, they haven't jazzed it up to sound more like the Marcel's high-octane doo-wop version than Presley's take on the same song. It's the desolate reverie of his prairie lament that their singing captures so well. After the game, three or four of them continue singing their jibes at the Arsenal faithful with what is either trademark Mancunian bottle or plain idiocy, surrounded as they are by several hundred gooners making their way home. Perhaps they feel they have to compensate for all those prawn cocktail munchers over at Old Trafford. Only a retaliatory rendition of We won the league in Manchester seems to score a point, but by then they've been guzzled by the funnel of bodies descending into Arsenal tube. It is a baking hot day, warmer still within the confounds of our smeg-shiny oven of a stadium, so the team do well to finish the 90 as strongly as they do. City are well drilled, and with better finishing at the end of their occasional breakaways, might have pinched the first goal you felt they'd settle for and defend to the hilt. New boy, Bakary Sanya, John Lee Hooker with a mop on his head, is injured, putting in a crunching tackle, and hobbles off to be replaced by Danielson. Flamini moves from central midfield to full-back to accommodate him, and you wonder if the young Brazilian and Fabregas will have the muscle to hold their own in the middle. Barring a ten-minute period early in the second half, when Man City finally perform like plausible league leaders, Danielson and Fabregas keep Arsenal pressing, and around the 70-minute mark, Cleb runs purposefully into the City box and is brought down by Richards for a penalty. Kasper Schmeichel, a peroxide Prince Harry, Looks tiddly in the goal, but his ludicrous aping of Father Peter's star jumping seems to do the trick. When it seems that a firmly struck shot placed low inside the post is sure to elude his dive, Van Persie elects to blast the ball straight down the middle, where it strikes the young keeper's flailing boot. The evening highlights suggest that Schmeichel moved off his line too soon, and that the spot kick should have been retaken, but even the assistant referee appeared to notice it. But the score remains nil-nil. Then, with ten minutes remaining, my man Kleb seems to pull himself together, as if for the previous hour and twenty minutes he's just been kidding around, and now, finally, with the game almost up, he'll play as if he means business. Another surge into the box, a deft forward ball rolled into the path of Fabregas, who blasts the ball high into the top left-hand corner of the City goal. 1-0 Arsenal. The sky-blue cloud... 
the sky blue choirs hey jude nana naring silenced by our own fab four ah13 sees a good low drive fizz wide of the post and city force a late corner for which the feisty keeper comes into the arsenal gold mail only to see his header go straight to the gloves of his opposite number halmunia it ends one nil to the arsenal Quite a few of us stay to watch the players do what seems to be becoming their traditional post-match huddle in the centre circle. Keep the faith. There's something tasty bubbling away nicely in that shiny smeg of ours. I just hope Jed didn't leave before the goal. Tuesday, August the 28th, 2007. May, 1971. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. T.S. Eliot, Four Quartets. Highbury bore me. Oh, all right. Hampton bore me, if you must know. The Bearstead Memorial Hospital, 17th of April, 1965. But we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Highbury may not have borne me, but there is a North London connection. My mother's family moved over from Belfast to a house at 497 Archway Road, I think sometime in 1953. Mum would have been about 18. Mum's father, Robert George Knight, known as George, was a painter and decorator. He invented a tool that helped you paint up to the skirting board called, appropriately enough, the George. It was patented, I believe. I never met either of my grandfathers. Dad's father, like him a Joseph, had died before they were married and George left his wife, my grandmother, Sarah, everyone called her Sadie, for another woman shortly before the, the same big day. My mother banned him from the ceremony, I believe, so distraught was she at his infidelity and subsequent departure. He's notably absent at Sadie's side here on August the 29th, 1959, as the wedding party spills out onto the Archway Road from the Methodist Church on the corner of Jackson Lane. My grandmother was a frequent presence in our home as my sister and I were growing up, so we never really heard that much about Grandfather George, and I suppose I just assumed him to have been long dead, which, if my mother's attitude to him was anything to go by, he pretty much had been from the day he packed his bag. Sometime in the early 70s, my grandmother moved out of 497 and took a small flat above a sportswear shop on Green Lanes, just by Haringey Station. From the window in the small kitchen at the rear of the flat, you could just about make out Haringey Stadium, where there used to be dog racing, and sometime in 1973, the tail of Comet Kahootek, just visible flying into the away shirt yellow of the sunset. In January 1975, I went with my dad from that same flat to Highbury to watch my first game, Pitiful 1-1 draw with lowly York City in the third round of the FA Cup. It was a short tube ride from Manor House to the Arsenal. It felt like what I suppose it was, a second home. Dad had been a fan of the club since childhood. He'd grown up in the afterglow of the great Gunners' sides of the 1930s, possibly even going to see them play Brentford at Griffin Park in the interwar league or cups. The first game of football I remember seeing was the televised 1971 FA Cup final between Arsenal and Liverpool. It was another George, Charlie, whose spectacular winning goal and famous cruciform collapsing celebration of it captured my heart and imagination that day. My sister has left me some family photographs for safekeeping and I spend much of the bank holiday Monday going through them. Here's Samuel Crawford, 
born according to his death certificate about May 1880, about May 1880, with his son-in-law George in a photograph probably taken somewhere around Brookborough in the very north of Ulster, where the Crawford's family home was. Whilst I'm looking among the documents in the loft for my mum and dad's marriage certificate, I come across those recording the deaths of mum's side of the family. There's Samuel and my great-grandmother's. Sadie died in 1982, only a year, I notice, after her long-lived mother and my mother's namesake, Elizabeth Anne Crawford, née Bullock. She was born in 1885, a year before Arsenal was formed. And then I come across George's death certificate, and I realise that I've never bothered to check when he actually died. I feel my chest tighten a little when I see the date. 22nd of May, 1971. So I could have met him, but never did. It felt very strange coming down from the attic with that thought, like losing something you never even knew you'd had. And the strange symmetry of football, of winning and losing, finding a new George only to lose another two Saturdays later. And that game, which had until then been a fixed, unyielding point of reference, a pole star by which I could navigate my, my youth, suddenly veered off, Kahootek-like, no longer a reliable crutch for the time-ravaged memory. Now that whole month has splintered into a kaleidoscope of uncertainty. How much had my mother known of her father's illness? Had his death come out of the blue? Why hadn't I picked up on her grief, if indeed she'd shown any? And if not, why not? How had the woman who through all her life proved so extraordinarily forgiving and charitable towards others been unable to extend those virtues to her own father? Had he gone peacefully like my father, in his sleep? Footfalls echo in the memory, down the passage which we did not take, towards the door we never opened, into the rose garden, my words echo thus in your mind. In the garden, late May, serene and tranquil, untravelled... In the garden, late May, serene and tranquil, untroubled by the sadness of the world, I hurl myself down in a cross on the grass, a double winner, a George glittering in the youthful sun. For weeks this goes on, months, all the pleasure of the world encapsulated in one goal, one timeless, prostrate celebration. Out there in another world, another May, another George lies dying, lies dead. Wednesday, August 29th, 2007. An unimportant incident. Champions League qualifier, Liverpool 4 to lose 0, Liverpool win 5 nil on aggregate. That field of loss, that field of hate, that field of blood, David Peace, the damned United. I scan the sports news on teletext. Spain international Antonio Puerta has died after suffering a heart attack in his club side Sevilla's 4-1 win against Getafe on Saturday. Defender Puerta, 22, collapsed in the first half and medics prevented him from swallowing his tongue. He collapsed again after going off and was later given cardiac resuscitation before being taken to hospital and placed in intensive care. Doctors say his condition deter deteriorated before his death. 
Leicester defender Clive Clark collapsed in the dressing room at half-time in their Carling Cup match at Nottingham Forest. The game was cooled off. Clark is now said to be in a stable condition. Kieran Dyer suffered a suspected broken leg as West Ham saw off. The players put their bodies on the line and all we do is watch. Or is it? At its best, football is as much a test of character as it is of skill and strength, of speed and endurance. But fans show strength. Fans endure. It just goes unrecorded in the main. Because it all comes down to what happens on the pitch in those 90 minutes. All the rest is propaganda. Character. The Arsenal sides of the 30s had a bit of that. Edris Hapgood, Eddie Hapgood, would go on to Captain England. Never the sharpest knife in the drawer. He lost his £10 signing on fee, that was a lot of money in those days, to a gang of grifters playing the three-card trick. Later, he suffered severe burns in an accident, so Arsenal physio Tom Whitaker built a harness for him to wear to protect his skin from the constant rubbing of his shirt. Alex James, one of the great undersung greats of British football. As one of the Wembley Wizards, he'd played a large part in Scotland's 5-1 demolition of England in 1928. Arsenal had won nothing before he joined the club. By the time of his retirement in 1937, they'd won four championships and the FA Cup twice and become the most famous club side in the world. James was a colossus, an invulnerable superman who could single-handedly transform a club's fortunes. Well, he was and he wasn't. Bizarrely, he suffered from acute rheumatism in his ankles. Those extraordinarily baggy shorts of his might have made him stand out on the pitch, given him an identifiable trademark, but they also served a purpose. He wore extra long long jumps because of his condition. Then there was Cliff Bastin, Cliff Boy Bastin, who until the emergence of Messrs Wright and Henri was asked was Arsenal's all-time highest goalscorer. Although, to put his achievements in context, it's worth remembering that he usually played on the wing. Bastin had a cartilage problem. It kept popping out. On the sideline, Whitaker would gently tease the recalcitrant bit of gristle back into place, and the boy would get back onto the field, score a few more goals, until it popped back out again. When the knee finally gave up the ghost, the Arsenal physio was even allowed to attend the operation to remove it no doubt to allow him a good look at the cause of so much patient massaging and adroit anatomical probing. The Royal College of Surgeons was certainly impressed by the hideously deformed thing, as they put it on permanent exhibit. So that was Cliff Boy Bastin. Oh, and he was deaf. It's not so much a wonder that the team achieved so much on the field, so much as that they managed to take to it at all. Bastin, James and Hapgood were all pallbearers for Herbert Chapman, the legendary manager who built the club into the world-renowned institution that dominated football in the 1930s. Chapman died of pneumonia at 3am on Saturday 6th of January 1934. At 3pm the same day, Arsenal kicked off against Sheffield Wednesday. Some of the players having learned of the great man's death from the newsstands on their way to the ground. I suppose Arsenal gave a good display that day, Bastin would later recall, considering that to the players the game was just an unimportant incident. Even the crowd was practically silent throughout the 90 minutes of a game which seemed to go on for 90 years. That field of loss, that field of hate, 
that field of blood. Poor old Alan Hansen. He wants shooting for that, he'd said as part of his match analysis when Colombian defender Pablo Escobar had put through his own net. His goal contributed to the 2-1 defeat by the United States that was to see his nation eliminated from USA 94 and allow the hosts to progress. Arriving back home, he duly was shot. Escobar, that is, not Hansen. But then they go to war over football in South America. It's different there. People don't get shot in the streets over here. That field of loss, that field of hate, that field of blood. There was a pleasant surprise last night. There were two, in fact. Strolling through the on-screen menu, we noticed the words UEFA Champions League. I assume it's a preview of this season's tournament, as both English sides played on the same day in the first leg, and Arsenal's game is tomorrow. But no, they're showing the return leg of the Liverpool-Toulouse game. Rhys Jones' parents and brother are there, three pillars of blue and a temple of red. Reese would have loved nothing more than to hear his beloved Everton Z-Cars theme blaring out from the Anfield PA system. So it does, and 40,000 scousers hold up their scarves of red and white. It's as if they're silently reminding the bereaved family that they'll never walk alone. And then they sing just that, 40,000 of them, red, consoling blue. And then they clap him until their hands are sore, as if he was one of their own as we should them. <laughs>